How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can you say amen? amen? It is now time for us to continue worshiping the Lord by receiving our tithes and offerings, bringing our special gifts into this, this house, knowing that the Lord is good. There are three ways to give. You can either text the word lineage to 77977, or you can go to lineage.us slash give. And if you're here, there's a box in the back where you can drop a check or cash right at the back near the sound booth. There's a link that's going in the online campus as well. We're very thankful for each and every one of you. Father, bless this offering. Multiply it to meet the needs of this, your house. Bless the gift and the giver. We give you praise for it in Jesus' precious, holy, mighty name. Amen and amen and amen. There's only really one announcement today, and that is that next Sunday, one week from today, is our 20th anniversary celebration. 20 years. 20 years. Bishop Kirby Clements will be here as our guest speaker for today. And you don't want to leave right after because we are going to have a covenant feast after the service is over. The food has already been ordered. So if y'all don't come, there's just going to be more for me. And I will blame my morbid obesity on y'all. My wife will not be happy. So stick around. Bring a friend that day. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful day. A marvelous, marvelous day in the house of the Lord. 20th anniversary celebration and covenant feast. Sunday, the 21st of January, one week from today. Amen? Give it up for the worship team today. Didn't they do a wonderful job? The legendary Lionel Holloman, our brand new music director. Pastor Chinway, as always, just holding it down for the team. Come on, give it. you can do better than that. Give it up for the team. Awesome. We're good. All right, thanks so much. All right, you happy to be in the house of the Lord today? All right, I got uh, two verses of scripture for you. Actually, I forgot to give them to the overhead, so I don't think they're going to be on the screen today, unless they can get them real quick. The first is Exodus 34, 6. And actually, put up Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 23. And if you can get that in the ESV, Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. Forget about the Exodus one. Just do Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 in the English Standard Version. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 23 in the English Standard Version. Lamentations 3, 20 through 23 in the English Standard Version. I'm actually just going to read it to you here, and then we're just going to jump in. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new Every morning, great is your faithfulness. Very familiar passage of scripture, isn't it? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end, but they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Father, I pray this morning that you would speak to us mightily by the power of your word and spirit, that you would grant us great understanding and great insight. I thank you for it in Jesus' precious, holy, mighty name. Amen. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and his mercies never come to an end. This statement does not transpire in a vacuum, but number one, there's a historical context and number two, there is a theological formula. 
Number one, the historical context. The statement in the book of Lamentations is being spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. The occasion is the fall of Jerusalem, somewhere around 586 B.C. Jeremiah, if you read the book of Jeremiah, the prophecy of Jeremiah, since about 605, for about 20 years, Jeremiah had been warning the people of Israel, and specifically the people of Jerusalem, that if you don't repent and get right with God, judgment is coming. And his judgment is coming through the Babylonians. The Babylonians are going to come in here, and they're going to run you out. And the people didn't listen to Jeremiah, didn't believe Jeremiah. Matter of fact, they oppressed Jeremiah, and at one point imprisoned Jeremiah. Sure enough, the Babylonians came in, and Jeremiah had to stand and watch everything that he had prophesied come to pass. But Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because when he watches his prophecies come to pass, he doesn't gloat. He never says, I told you so. He weeps. And his weeping takes the form of the book of Lamentations, where he weeps over the fallen city of Jerusalem and over the destroyed temple. He laments. That's why it's called the book of Lamentations. And God speaks prophetically through him in the midst of his lamentation. Because in his grief, he does not separate himself from the Spirit of God. There is a key skill of the mature believer, and that is remaining intimately connected with the Spirit of God in the midst of the deepest grief. We tend to disconnect ourselves from God because of our grief. We tend to use our grief as an excuse to disconnect from God. And then what tends to happen in our grief is that the enemy jumps on our grief and turns it into torment. But that's another sermon. And Jeremiah, in the midst of his lamentation, gets a revelation and declares in these two verses, looking at the worst devastation that you could possibly imagine, he makes this declaration to Israel, to the people who have been devastated, to the people who feel that they are now cursed, to the people who feel like God has abandoned them. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And His mercies never come to an end. But they are new every morning. To a group of people that feel that the steadfast love of the Lord has ceased towards them, he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And to a group of people that feel that God's mercies have come to an end towards them, he says, his mercies never come to an end. But they are new every morning. This is the historical context. But there's also a theological formula behind this verse of Scripture. Because this transpires somewhere around 586 B.C. But if you go back to about 1440 B.C., almost a thousand years prior, about 900 years prior, there's this guy named Moses who brings the people of Israel out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea and they come back to the mountain. And God had promised him, remember God met him on that mountain in the burning bush. And God said to him, this will be the sign to you that you've brought Israel out of Egypt. After you've brought Israel out of Egypt, 
you will worship on this mountain. And he comes back expecting a burning bush, and instead he comes to a burning mountain. The revelation increased after the trial. It was the revelation that led him into the trial, but when he came out of the trial, it was a greater revelation. This is the life of the believer. God leads us from glory to glory to glory to glory, but in between each glory, there's a trial. you got to hold on through the trial because on the other side of the trial is a greater revelation than the last revelation you had. And when Moses brings the people of Israel to Mount Sinai, we arrive at the birth of the phenomenon that we call Scripture or the Bible. Hear me on this. The Bible does not begin at Genesis 1. The Bible begins at Exodus 20. The first words of, that were written in the Bible were not, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first words ever written were, I am Yahweh Eloheinu, the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt on eagles' wings. You shall have no other gods before me. And the first words written were not written by man. They were written by God. This Bible that we trust did not begin with a man sitting down to write the words of God. It began with God saying to Moses, come up here on the mountain, I've got something to give you. And Moses comes up to the mountaintop and God cuts out tablets of stone out of the side of the mountain and with his own finger chisels the Ten Commandments into those tablets of stone. That is the first scripture that was ever written. And Moses comes down the mountain with the first words of scripture. Engraved in tablets of stone, on a 40-day fast, a 40-day revelation on the mountain, he comes down and the product of that 40-day revelation was Ten Commandments engraved in tablets of stone. And he gets to the bottom of the mountain and the first thing he sees is his people engaged in all kinds of idolatrous foolishness. And he's so angry and grieved that he takes the tablets of stones and dashes them to pieces. Because it's so hard to hold on to what God gives you on the mountaintop when you come down into the valley. That's why you come to church and get a word and you're tempted to cuss as soon as you get on the freeway. That's why you can get so much victory at church and then get in a fight with your wife as soon as you get home. And you're tempted to believe that what you got at church wasn't real. It's not that it wasn't real. It's that what God gives you on the mountain is always tested in the valley. And you've, got to yes. and you've got to develop maturity to be able to hold on to what God gives you on the mountain when you come down into the valley. And so Moses was the first lawbreaker. He broke all ten of the commandments. Nobody even knew them yet, and Moses had already broken all ten of them. And God says, come on back up here, Moses. And Moses is like, oh, no, I don't need to come back. I can still remember them. I, there's only ten of them. You said, don't have any other gods before you. Uh, you said, don't take your name in vain. You said, remember the Sabbath day. 
to keep it holy. You said to honor our father and our mother. You said not to kill and not to steal and not to cheat, not to commit adultery, not to covet our neighbor's wife. You know, I can remember them, Lord. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. I didn't need 40 days on the mountain to give you 10 memory verses. I took you up to the mountain to give you a revelation. Because when you broke those tablets of stone, you didn't just break 10 memory verses. You broke the spirit of what I gave you. You broke the revelation, not the memorization. I need you to come back up to the mountain so I can give you the spirit again. So I can give you the revelation again. And so Moses comes back up to the mountain. And when Moses gets up to the top again, he realizes that he needs something more. You see, there's something about your failures that make you aware of your need for something more. That's why, in a sense, your failures are a good thing. Because they cause you to come to grips with a deeper need for God. Your failures are a good thing in the past tense. If they cause you to come to grips with a deeper need for God than you knew you had before. Moses, when he goes up to back up the mountain this time, is more hungry for God than he was when he went up last time. How do I know this? Because this time, he cries out to God in Exodus 33 in a way that he didn't cry out to God in Exodus 23. This time, he says, please show me your glory. This time, he says, I need more than your commandments. I need to see your face. I need more than your ways. I need your face. I need to see you. Take away the clouds. I don't need to see the clouds. I need to see you. And God speaks to him and says, no one can see me and live. And Moses says, then let me die. And God says, well, can't do that because I still need you. Got some stuff I need you to do and killing you up here would not, uh, wouldn't do me much good. But here's what I'm going to do for you. And he takes Moses and he, he, he stuffs him into the cleft of the rock. He covers him with his hand. And then God takes the cloud off. God was always clothed in a cloud. He comes down, wraps himself up in a cloud so that Moses could look at him. God takes off the cloud. The cloud was not the glory. People talk about the cloud of the glory. No, the cloud shrouded the glory. The cloud protected you from being consumed by the glory. The cloud was not itself the glory. The cloud was the covering that protected you from being killed by the glory. God strips himself of the cloud, covers Moses with the palm of his hand, and passes before Moses. And when he gets past Moses, he removes his hand so that Moses could look upon the back of God. He says, you can't see my, my face, I'll let you see my back. That's the best I can do for you and not kill you. But even that almost killed Moses. Because when he beheld the hinder parts of God, his human frame couldn't handle it, and it said he fell like a board, like a dead man. 
But here's where the formula comes in. Because as God passed before him, God did not simply walk, but God shouted a declaration of himself. God told Moses who he was. If you can find Exodus 34, 6. Exodus 34, 6. This was God's self-declaration as he passes before Moses. He walks before Moses and says, let me tell you who you're about to see. Let me explain to you whose presence you're about to encounter. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Just this verse. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. From this verse, prophetically was extracted a theological formula. Two words became the theological summary for understanding who God is. All throughout the Old Testament. Everything written in the Old Testament from Genesis 1 to the end of the book of Malachi is built on these two words. And everything in the New Testament is extrapolated from there as well. And those two words are number one, merciful. And number two, goodness. The word merciful is rachamayim or rachamim. Say rachamim. Now you need to go spit, I know, because that ha, ha. In Hebrew, there, there are these what they call gutturals. Well, you got to say it with the back of your throat. Rachamim, rachamim. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The second word, goodness, is chesed. Chesed. It starts with the guttural. Chesed. A, a little much. <laughs> Rachamim and chesed. These two terms, two Hebrew terms, became the theological paradigm for understanding God's self-declaration of himself. Let's break these down a little bit. Rachamim. It's literally plural. Mercies. But mercy is actually not a good term. It's actually not it's more than mercy. I mean, mercy is a good, I'm not saying it's not a good, it's not a good translation. It's not enough. That word, rachamim, do you know what it literally means? It means womb. The images of the way a mother carries her child in her womb. But the mother's womb, it's not, to, it, the mother's womb is a metaphor for the way a mother carries her child, not just for those nine months, but mothers carry their children in their womb for the rest of their lives. A mother's womb is a metaphor for the, the compassion, for the, the deep care, for the ultimate concern, and for the affection that a mother has for her child. That, those are God's mercies. It's his womb. A God merciful is literally what it says there. 
the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, El Rachamim, a God full of mercy or a God merciful, the God of many mercies, a God warmly affectionate, deeply compassionate, the God ultimately concerned for his children, carrying his children in his womb. That's his Rachamim. And then the word goodness, chesed. Chesed is more than goodness. When you think of goodness, it's like, you know, you hear Brother LJ playing the, the, the keyboard, and you're like, ooh, that, he's good. I had people, you know, texting me all week, man, who is that dude? That dude is good. He's good. Goodness is when somebody does something good. Or when you taste some food, it's like, man, that was good. That was some good food right there. That's good. But God's chesed is more than he does some stuff good. The word chesed literally means covenant faithfulness. Wives, imagine this. This is going to blow you away. Imagine having a husband who perfectly loves you, not only with his actions, but with his words, not only with his words, but with his thoughts, with his attitudes, with his emotions, with his intents, with all of his intentions. That's chesed. He is faithful to the covenant that he made with you from the moment he made that covenant with you in every way forever, unchangingly. That's chesed. It means that when God came into covenant with you, he has not changed. Ever. He does not change. That's chesed. That's what it means to say that God is good. It means that he does not change. And it means that he does not change in his covenant faithfulness and in his loyalty to us. So these two words, he is rachamaim, rachamim. He is merciful. More than forbearance, when you think of merciful, you think of forbearance, don't you? Like, you were supposed to get some punishment, but you didn't get it. That's mercy. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? That was mercy because I was supposed to get a beating. I remember those days, you know, you're not even going to beat me? <laughs> you know, that's mercy, right? I'm not getting a whooping today? That's mercy. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we think of God's mercy as he should have punished me, but he didn't. God's mercy is more than that. It's more than the fact that he doesn't give you the beating that you deserved. No, he carries you in his womb. He is deeply affectionate. Now, when we talk about God's chesed, his covenant faithfulness, it does not ebb and flow. It does not swell and contract. It's not high one day and low another day. It's constant. It's the same at all times. He doesn't love you more one day than another day. It's kind of like when you think of your children, you always love your children. Always. From the moment they're conceived to the end of your life, you love your children the same. But you don't hug them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You're not, con I mean, imagine if your parent was just constantly exploding 24 hours a day with love for you. Oh, I love you so much. Oh, you're so, oh, I just love you. And I said, get away from me. You know, after a while, it's like, it's too much. You just wake up in the morning and they're like, oh, I love you. Oh, for God's sake. Wouldn't that just be too much? No, as a parent, your rachamim, which is your affectionate love, where you're 
holding your children and you're hugging your children and you're rubbing their back and you're showing affection, that ebbs and flows. That swells and contracts. You're looking for the right opportunity at the right time to manifest the right kind of affection that is helpful for their growth and their development. But you know, if you give them too much, you stunt their growth. If you give them too little, you stunt their growth. So you're always looking for the sweet spot to try to give them just enough. That's God with his mercies. He's always trying to to give us just enough, not too much. God knows that if he manifests too much of his love to us, that it stunts our growth and we become dependent on an experience. And if he gives us too little, we become cold. The problem is that most of us major in one kind of love or the other kind of love. You see, there are cold intellectual Christians who only want God's chesed, the steadfast love. I know he loves me. He always loves me. I don't have to feel it. I don't have to know it. I don't have to hear his voice. He doesn't have to show me. It's like saying that as a parent. Imagine the child is born. I know my daddy loves me. I know my mommy loves me. They don't have to feed me. They don't have to clothe me. I don't need anything from them. They don't have to hug me. I don't need any affection from them. I just know they love me. I I never have to see them. I never have to hear their voice. I just know they love me. They're 10 years old. Have you ever heard? When was the last time you heard your mom's voice? I haven't heard from my mom since I was born, but I know she loves me. A lot of believers are like that. When was the last time you heard from God? What did God speak to you? He doesn't speak to me, but I know he loves me. When was the last time you felt God's presence? Well, I don't think I've ever felt God's presence. I've been a believer for 27 years, and I never felt his presence, but I don't have to feel his presence because I know he loves me. As a parent, wouldn't that break your heart? If your child said that? You don't think that breaks God's heart? That his children believe that his love is an intellectual, philosophical commitment that he makes to us? And that the only thing he's pleased with is that we believe it intellectually? Nah. Nah. You know what? Even as an adult, when I need to, I know when I'm aware when I need to feel my daddy's love or my mama's love, and I call him. Or I go see him. And what I do is I go hug them, or I go kiss them, or I start telling them how much I love them, right? It's like I engage in and initiate in an exchange of love. Why? Because of course I know that they love me, but those expressions of love are so important to the growth of our relationship. Jeremiah is looking at devastated Israel in the most devastating moment of their lives. And in his heart, his prayers, what do these people need right now in the moment of this devastation? They need two things. Number one, they need to know that God hasn't abandoned them. That his steadfast love has not changed, even in the midst of their deepest devastation. They need to know because we're so prone as believers to believe that God has cursed us as soon as something goes wrong in our lives. Because we're so prone to believe as soon as something goes wrong, I must be out of God's will. Sometimes the greatest sign that you're in God's will is something goes wrong. That philosophy that if something goes wrong, I'm out of God's will, what if Jesus believed that? He would have avoided the cross. 
Imagine he's in the, in the court of Pontius Pilate. They're trying him. He goes, I must be out of God's will because they're lying on me. Everybody's rejecting me. They drive the nails in his hands. Now I know I'm out of God's will. All of the apostles were persecuted. Well, must be out of God's will. No, you're not out of God's will. Sometimes the fact that something goes wrong is a sign that you're right in the center of God's will. I'll never forget back in 2007 when the, when the, when the, <laughs> the bottom fell out of the economy in the housing market. And right before it, 10 minutes before the bottom fell out of the housing market, we bought a house. And the Lord worked miracles for us to buy that house. I mean, the down payment came out of nowhere. And I mean, I mean miracles happened for us to buy that house. And uh, 45 minutes later, the bottom fell out of the housing market, and our house wasn't worth nothing. I was like, thank you, thank you, thanks a lot, Lord. Way, way to look out for a brother. You know, I'm supposed to be your servant. Hello? And we lost that place. And I really had to go and seek the face of God and say, God, what's going on here? I mean, you sent me in there to get the crap beat. It's like God says, Go in that room. That's my, that's my will for you right there. And as soon as you go through the door, there's five guys waiting there with brass knuckles to beat the crap out of you. And they beat the tar out of you. You come out with two black eyes and broken ribs. And the Lord says, good job. Well done. Well done. That's exactly what I needed. Uh, what? For real? And the Lord said, a bunch of folks in your church are getting ready to lose their homes. I sent you there ahead of them. So that they could see somebody walk in faith through this valley and be encouraged. I said, oh, okay. I realized that even when Israel was carried out off into Babylon, the prophet Ezekiel had to go with them. That God always sends his prophets into captivity with his people because he never leaves himself without a witness. Some of the stuff you've had to go through in your life is simply because God needed a witness in that place. He needed somebody in that place to walk in faith, but we think so individualistically and episodically that everything's about me, and if it doesn't go right for me, then God must not love me, and we don't think that maybe sometimes God sets me in a place to endure something on behalf of somebody else. Maybe he's trying to show love to somebody else through me, and maybe I don't stop to realize that what a privilege that is. For God to say, I'm going to put you in the way of this. I'm going to allow you to walk through this valley so that I can show love to somebody else because maybe that somebody else wouldn't have held on through that valley unless they saw my example. Maybe that somebody else wouldn't have trusted God in that valley unless they saw my example. Maybe looking over and seeing me in that valley with them was the encouragement they needed to keep trusting God and to keep walking with God until they got to the other side of that valley. Maybe I needed to be the prophet with Israel in captivity, in that moment. Amen. And Jeremiah stands weeping in the streets of Jerusalem, and it's all destroyed. And in the midst of it, he looks at his people, and he says, guys, I know everything looks terrible, and it's all been destroyed, and I know that you're looking at yourselves and saying, this is the fruit of our own disobedience, and this was the mistake that we made. But listen, guys, let me tell you something, the good news in the midst of this bad news said, even in the midst of all of this, the steadfast love of the Lord still has not ceased. 
He's still a God merciful and abounding in steadfast love. He's still the same God that appeared to Moses on that mountain even after he had broken all ten of the commandments. He's still a God merciful and abounding in steadfast love. And this morning I just just sense that God wants to establish us in the truth. And there's some of you here today and you're struggling in your heart because you tend to doubt his steadfast love. Every time you walk through a trial, you start to feel like you're cursed. If if there's one thing I could break off of all of your lives today, forevermore, it would be the lie that you're under the curse of the enemy. Listen, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, there is no curse over your life. You are not cursed. You need to be established in the truth of his steadfast love. The psalmist said, your steadfast love extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like majestic mountains. Your wisdom is like the depths of the sea. Both high and low among men find refuge under the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your household. You give them to drink from your river of delights. For with you is the river of life, and in your light we see light. You don't realize that that, the beginning of that entire paradigm is his steadfast love extending to the heavens, meaning that his steadfast love is a gateway drug. It is the open door to every single other one of his blessings, meaning if you step into the river of his steadfast love, it carries you into every other blessing, every other divine blessing, all of his favor. But listen, when you step out of the river of steadfast love and begin to believe that you're under a curse... It cuts you off from every other blessing as well. Your steadfast love, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You need the discipline of looking in the mirror and saying, I know this has gone wrong in my life, but the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. I know this has fallen apart in my life, but the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It's like a highway that extends forever. But then it says, His mercies... Rachamim, it's plural. Steadfast love is singular. Chesed, singular. Rachamim, plural. He's got one steadfast love, but many mercies. They never come to an end. His mercies, follow me here, are like a bucket of chicken, fried chicken, that has no end. Come on, somebody. Oh, glory. Mm -hmm. See, every time you stick your hand in that bucket, ha, and you think there's no more pieces, ha, there's another leg, ha, there's another thigh, ha, there's another drumstick, ha, there's another wing, ha. He says there are new every morning, every morning, every morning, every morning, which is an allusion to the people of Israel walking through the wilderness and God feeds them with manna. And what God says to them when he begins to feed them with manna It's just take enough for today. Don't worry, there's going to be more tomorrow. And it's going to be fresh and new. Don't hoard the manna. You don't have to hoard it. There's more tomorrow. It's going to be new 
in the morning. I'll end with this as Brother LJ comes back to the keyboard. Follow me because this is going to sound like a left turn, but it's not. I learned something about my wife. I was talking to my, my brother Jeremy about this and my sister Jennifer, my friends from out of town. They're here. Wave, Je- Jeremy and Jennifer. My brother. My brother from another mother. My wife is an Enneagram 6 with a 5 wing. If that means something to you, great. If not, don't worry about it. But the 5 is the investigator. The 6 is the loyalist. The 5 is the investigator, which means when she's triggered, she becomes an investigator. And she starts to dig. And she tends to become an investigator specifically in the realm of our finances. So she'll, she will call me on my cell phone and I'm in the other room. And she'll say, what's this? $32.99, what is that? And I'll say, oh, that's the blah, 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 blah. Well, what is this? $21.99, what is that? Oh, that's the blah. Now, when she does that, she's being the investigator. But I feel like she's being an interrogator. So when she becomes... To me, the interrogator, everything in me wants to shut down. Because when she becomes an interrogator, to me it feels like prelude to a rejection. At the end of this interrogation, she's going to reject me. At the end of this interrogation, she's going to push me away. At the end of this interrogation, she's going to tell me what a failure I am. And so what happens is I start shutting down inside and becoming defensive and then I become less and less capable of answering her questions my logic stops working and then I start answering like uh, 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 uh. what's this 999 well what do we care it's only nine dollars and 99 cents why you care about it nine dollars why are you why are you why are you pestering about six dollars it's only six dollars what matter what does it matter it's only six dollars I need to know why do you need to know it's only five dollars And then we get in a fight, and then the rejection that I feared becomes a reality. And at a certain point, I made a decision. I'm not going to do that anymore. Here's the decision I made. Find a way to stay present. Follow me here. I'm going somewhere. Find a way to stay present. When she becomes the investigator, just stay present. Just keep answering her questions. Just stay present. Just keep answering her questions. Just stay present. She said, "What's this? Thirty-two ninety-nine? Oh, that's a. Uh, um, um, oh yeah, yeah, that's a. That's this. 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 this Netflix. Okay. What's this? Twenty-one ninety-nine? Oh, that's a uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. What's this? Nineteen ninety-nine? Oh, that's that's uh, Popeyes. What's this? Uh, Twelve ninety-nine? Oh, oh, that's a." Uh, uh, that's also Kentucky Fried Chicken. Why do you eat so much chicken? I don't know. I'm black. I just like chicken. <laughs> stay present. Stay present. I still don't know what the, the outcome's going to be, but stay present. Stay present. Stay. And I'll never forget the first time I did it. This went on for about 30 minutes. Grilled me on every individual transaction. Everyone. Everyone. Line by line. What's this 99 cents? There's a transaction here for five cents. What's that five cents? 
What's that five cents? Oh, uh, stay present, stay present. We got to the end. We got to the end. And she goes, oh, I feel so much better. Thank you so much for staying with me in that. Thank you so much for staying with me in that. Thank you for not shutting down. I feel so much, I feel so much peace and joy. Thank you. And I thought, oh, wow. This was not prelude to an, a rejection. This is how she tries to get close to me. Husbands, I'm trying to teach y'all something. Are you listening? Y'all need to be taking notes. Y'all not writing nothing down. You thought she was pushing y'all away. She's trying to, I thought she was pushing me away all that time. She was trying to draw close to me. When she becomes the investigator, she's trying to overcome that which she feels pushed away by. And she's asking me these questions so that I can answer them so that she can come close to me again. And all I have to do is just stay present. Don't shut down. Stay present. Don't shut down. Stay present. Don't shut down. And I realized something about myself. That whenever I anticipate failure, I shut down inside and I back away. If I anticipate failure, I'm going to fail, I shut down inside and I back away. And when I anticipate rejection, you're going to reject me, I shut down inside and I disappear. I shut down inside and I disappear. And I started to think, how many times have I done this with God? How many times have I done this with God where I started to anticipate maybe God's going to push me away? And I shut down inside and started to back away from his presence like Adam and Eve in the garden, covering themselves with fig leaves and hiding behind bushes so that God had to come look for them. Adam, where are you? Why are you running from me? I'm not here to push you away. I'm here to draw close to you. I'm here to draw you close. Stay present with me. In the trial, God is drawing you close. In the trial, God is calling you near. In the trial, He is wooing you. In the trial, He's drawing you with cords of compassion. This is what the prophet Jeremiah is crying out. The steadfast love of the Lord. I know you're in the worst trial of your life and everything is broken and everything has fallen apart. But listen, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Do you know what that means? That means that no matter how bad things get, he's still drawing you in the midst of that bad thing, trying to draw you, trying to pull you to himself. But you got to stay present. Stay present. Stay present. Stay present. Stay present. What's it mean to stay present? What's it mean to stay present? I know where my mind goes when I check out. When, my, when I check out, I just want to veg. I'll veg on YouTube. I'll veg on Netflix. That's when I got to find a new series to watch. It's when I just got to grab my, open up Instagram and just start scrolling through, just looking at those reels. Typically, when I go in the bathroom, I spend, that's why I spend way too much time in there. And by the way, the Lord healed me of all that stuff I was confessing to you last week. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you, Lord. What never ceases to amaze me is the healing power of a little bit of Vaseline and a good night's sleep. Come on, somebody. 
and a probiotic. God, won't he do it? Won't he do it? I digress. He's drawing you. He's drawing you. He's drawing you. You just got to stay present with him. Prayer. What's the definition of prayer? Prayer is the means by which we intentionally stay present with God. That's all it is. It's not about the words you use. Oh, thou great and mighty God without aguanutiousness. It's not about that. It's about God, here I am. God, here I am. I am intentionally presenting myself to you as one present. I'm being present with you. Here I am. I'm here, God. I'm staying present with you. And what tends to happen is that when we go into our trials, prayer is the first thing that suffers because we become less present with God in the midst of the trial. Why? Because we anticipate his rejection and we shut down. But God becomes more available to us in the trial. That's the travesty. Because when the child is throwing a tantrum, the parent is more available, not less. A good parent, that is. When the child is struggling, my baby was colicky. And when she was throwing tantrums, we held her and sang over her more, not less. We were more available to her in her time of struggle. The steadfast love of the Lord is unending, unceasing. His steadfast love is unceasing. And his mercies are unending. They never come to an end. But they're new every morning. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would take these words and seal them to every heart and every mind and every soul and every heart. And I pray, Father, that a decision would be made. I'm going to increase my presence with God. Lord, we talk so much about wanting you to be present with us. I want God's presence. I want God's presence. But God, all you need is for us to make a decision to stay present with you. Because so often your offer of, of your presence is met with our absence. We've anticipated your rejection and shut down and become absent to you. And like Adam and Eve in the garden, we're hiding behind our fig leaves and our bushes. And you're walking in the garden, calling our names, saying, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? But this morning, Father, we respond to you and say, here I am. Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. And Father, may this ever be our prayer that throughout this day and throughout this night, the cry of my heart would be, here I am, Lord. I'm still here. I'm here. I'm, I'm waiting for you. I'm present with you. Here I am. And that throughout this week, the cry of my heart would be, here I am. That every time I open the words of Scripture, here I am. That every time I worship, here I am. I'm remaining present with you. Here I am. And maybe for some of you today, it might be the first time that you've opened your heart to the Lord to say, here I am. The beginning of your walk with Jesus, here I am. That's all it is. Here I am. 
I'm presenting myself to you and I'm opening my heart to you. And I want you to know today that when you open your heart to Jesus, you're opening your heart to the one who has loved you from before the foundation of the world. A God merciful womb. He's loved you from your mother's womb. He watched you develop in your mother's womb and he's loved you and he's been waiting to show you how much he loves you and how much he cares for you. So Father, I speak your blessing over this gathering today. Strengthen and encourage each and every heart and may every heart open radically to you today. May we remain present with you this week in a way that transcends anything that we've ever experienced before. I give you praise for it in Jesus' precious, holy, mighty name. Amen, 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 amen. Come on, stand up on your feet and give God the praise. We got prayer warriors at this altar who will pray for you. If you, if you opened your heart to Jesus for the first time, I want to invite you to come to this altar and let somebody pray for you. Tell somebody, don't leave this place without telling somebody and letting somebody pray, pray for you. If you need prayer for anything today, we got prayer warriors here at this altar who would love to pray for you, not just if you receive Jesus. You need healing in your body. You need encouragement. You need strength. We got folks here who will pray for you and, and bless your heart. Uh, we're so thankful for you today. May the joy of the Lord be your strength. Can't wait to celebrate with you next Sunday as we celebrate our 20th anniversary celebration. Pastor Chinway uh, has something to announce, right? Amen. Make sure he leaves the premises. <laughs>